This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Judaism is not religion Religion is compartmentalized. Judaism is life. Just like life is not compartmentalized. Every cell of your body is alive. It's 24-7. You don't take a break from life for one moment. For a Jew, Judaism is life itself. It's not religion. Religion is something extracurricular, like you have music in your life, and you have ballet in your life, and you have, you have religion once a week, certain moments, certain occasions. You tune in, you tune out. But that's for a Jew. Judaism is all-encompassing. It's life itself. God is my life. And I can't live without life. That is just like a person yearns for life. You want vitality. You want energy. You want to feel alive. You want to be vibrant, energetic. So too, for a Jew, what makes us energetic, what makes us alive, it's our connection, divine connection. When you realize that God is my soul and God is my life, therefore you can't get enough of it. Just like you can't get enough of life, anything that strengthens your life, So too, a Jew wants to be rejuvenated again. You want to reconnect. You can't get enough of Torah. You can't get enough of mitzvah. Because every time you study Torah, it's like recharging. You're recharging yourself. You're plugging in. You're connecting. It's your life. And therefore, you go way beyond your duty, way beyond your obligation. It's not a question of obligation. It's life itself. Then your Judaism is alive. And you're alive as a Jew. So this is a love, a specific love. On one hand, it's innate, inherent. We're all born with it. Because the truth is, for the Jewish soul... God is my soul and God is my life. But it's hidden. It's submerged. You don't naturally sense that reality, that truth. So you need your mind to awaken yourself to that truth. And, if you, and then it comes to the forefront. Then it emerges and surfaces and you sense this love. So it's a combination. It's innate love. It's a natural love. We all have it equally. But on the other hand, you need your mind to awaken it. You have to awaken yourself to that truth. Therefore, since all our minds are different, therefore we all approach it in our own unique way. Then there is the love, the higher love, that God is my Father. It's like a parent-child relationship, which is a very intimate, intimate relationship. Very profound relationship. It's the most core, the most essential relationship that we have. It's your essence. It's who you are. That's what God forbid if someone loses a parent. It's the longest mourning period. Even more than if you lose a spouse, God forbid, or more than if you lose a child. Because that's your foundation. Parents are our, are our foundation. And that relationship is, is there, whether you feel it or not, you're conscious of it or not, you appreciate it or not, you like it, you don't like it. It's the reality. You can't divorce your parents. It's your essence. The reason why parents can cause so much grief and pain is precisely because of that relationship, because it's so intimate and you can't run, you can't hide. It's who you are, it's your essence your foundation so when you realize how deep your connection with God is that God is my parent my father I can pour my heart out like a child pours his heart out to his father and that love is reciprocal and that love is unconditional and that love it's infinite it's unconditional 
It's like a parent-child relationship. It's an unconditional love. There's no limit to that relationship. So once you realize and you feel, as we say in prayer many times, Avinu, my father, Avinu, Malkeinu, my father, my king, and you feel that, that love and you feel that relationship, then, again, that love is innate, inherent. You're born with it. You don't create it. But on the other hand, you need your mind to awaken yourself to it, to be aware of it, to feel it, that it should be palpable, it should be a reality in your life. You realize you're not alone. You have, that, you have this unconditional relationship, unconditional love going between you and Hashem. It's personal. It's as personal as it gets. Parent-child relationship. It doesn't get deeper than that. It doesn't get more personal than that. It doesn't get more infinite than that. It's something that skips generations, that, that's transmitted from generation to generation. It's infinite. It's something that the ability to have children and to be able to add, add infinitum, to continue. This is the deepest, deepest relationship that we have. So when you awaken this relationship, it's a very powerful love that we feel towards Hashem. Now these two loves lead us to very specific action. Because when you feel that God is my soul, therefore I need life. How do I have life? Where do I get my life from? When you study Torah, when you do a mitzvah. When God is your father, there's nothing you won't do for your father. It's beyond the love of God is my life. God is my soul, God is my life. It's my soul. So I want to live, but I won't go beyond my life. I won't sacrifice myself. I'll live. I'll fully live a Jewish life. I'm not going to sacrifice myself. Inconvenience myself. But when you realize you have this parent, you feel that parent-child relationship, then you're ready. it's an infinite love. And therefore you're even ready to sacrifice your life for God. You're ready to inconvenience yourself for God. You're ready to go way beyond your obligation, way, way beyond yourself. You rise above yourself. You rise above your ego. So that's a very, very powerful love which leads you to do what your parent wants. What does your parent want? What does God want? What does our Father in Heaven want? What gives Him nachas? You want to give your father nachas? You want to put a smile on his face? What gives him nachas? There's only one thing. Study Torah and do mitzvot and do good deeds. Acts of goodness and kindness. That's what he wants. That's all God wants. Very simple. God doesn't have any... God doesn't ask of us. He asks very simple things. I want you to be a good Jew. Lead a good Jewish life. Study Torah. Do a mitzvah. Do an act of kindness. When you do what God wants, you know how much nachas it gives him. So you're motivated. If I'm the son and God is my father, I'll do anything. Or I'm the daughter God is my father, I'll do anything. To please my parent. I'll even go beyond. I'll even sacrifice myself. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about... Not about my life, but the pleasure that I can give to my parent. Now, the question is, it's very difficult to actually evoke these feelings. You should actually feel them, palpably feel them. God is literally my father, Avinu. That God is my soul and my life. So he says, it's enough even if you evoke it not in your heart, you don't feel it as a palpable emotion, but even if you evoke it in your mind, you're aware of it. Just awareness. And in your mind, you make a movement. There's a movement in your mind, a resolution in your mind, that this is something that I ought to be attracted to. Because let's say you can't evoke a feeling in your heart. 
Your heart is not on fire. You don't feel any love or any great pull or any great attraction. You're meditating, you're reflecting. Your mind is working very hard. And yet you can't seem to bring yourself to feel this love. So he says it's enough if you just are aware of it. And he says this is the power. The power of speech is that the voice, the speech, arouses the feeling. That's why when you pray, when you say the words of prayer, and you hear yourself saying the words of prayer, the power of speech is speech reveals, stirs something in your heart. The breath of the ear comes from within you. So when you speak words, you speak words, the words have the power of revealing, of stirring up. So even though you don't feel, but words are very powerful. Aid, helping you to stir something up inside your heart. Even if it's not a full-blown emotion. It's like a fire. You know, a fire could be very weak. When you blow on the fire, the fire blows up. The fire suddenly intensifies. You turn the flame, the spark into a... In order to turn the spark into a flame, you have to blow on it. So words, which come from the, from the heart, the breath, the lungs, the words have the power, the voice has the power to evoke feelings. That's why when you're praying and you hear a very stirring uh, leader of prayer, a chazan, he has the power to evoke, helps you pray, it helps you evoke those feelings and experiences that you should be experiencing while you're praying. That's the power of speech, the power of the voice. By praying every single day and repeating, God is my father, Avinu. And by saying, God is my life. Even though you're just saying it, you don't really feel it. But just saying it and repeating it and trying to mean it and being aware of what you're saying, that alone has the ability to evoke, stir up something inside of you, some sort of feeling, some sort of something. And that's all God asks of us. God is not asking of us the impossible. As Moshe tells the Jewish people in Deuteronomy, and this is the foundation of the whole book of Tanya, that Kikarev, that to be Jewish is something that's very close and very near to you. He says, He starts out with your mouth. Why does he start out with your mouth? He mentions mouth, speech, thought, heart, thought. Lasayasi action. So which order is he going? Either you, either it starts out with thought, then speech, then action. Should have said it's close to you, to your heart, to your mouth, and to act. Or you start out with action, action, speech, and thought. He starts out speech, thought, action. What's the order? So here the Altarebi explains because what he means is that sometimes you have to start out with ficha, with your mouth. Because the voice has the ability to stir some inner intent. When you say something, when you speak, it, it, it has the power to evoke something inside of you. Of course, we could speak and it means nothing. We do it every day, we daven, and 
<laughs> it doesn't evoke anything. It doesn't stir anything. We don't mean what we say. But it, the voice has the power. If you're paying attention and you mouth the words and you say it and you mean it, it has the power to evoke. So he says, Beficha, in your voice, that will lead you to Bilvafcha, will stir something up in your heart, in your thoughts at least, which will lead you to action. When you're all stirred up, and you're aware, and you make this resolution, this leads you to action, to act in a way that will please your Father in Heaven, because once you know, and you, just by saying it, God, you're my Father, you say it enough times, and you mean what you say, it has to affect you, at least somewhat at least minimally to lead you to action. God is my Father. I want to please my Father. So whatever it takes, and I know what it takes to please my Father. My Father is not shy. <laughs> he, says, he's, he tells us clearly and explicitly what's going to please him. He says, he spelled it out. 613 mitzvot. Study Torah, do mitzvot. Be kind, be good. And that's how you will please me. So by, by, but by saying it, it will have an impact on you. It will affect you. So that's why the verse starts out, Beficha in your mouth, just by saying it and repeating it, God is my Father, God is my Father, by saying God is my life, this, you're, you're my soul, the soul of my soul, and therefore, I, I love life, and what is true life, and what is a connection to life, how am I connected to life, through Torah and mitzvot, therefore I will cling, cling on to life, like to dear life, I will study Torah like I'm holding on to dear life. Then the studying Torah is different. If you're studying Torah as a burden, and you're doing it begrudgingly. But if you're studying Torah, like for, you're holding on for dear life, when you're doing a mitzvah because you want to connect, you want to plug in, this is, you're holding on for dear life, it's a different mitzvah. The mitzvah is alive, the Torah is alive. So by saying it, just by saying it and repeating it and being aware of what you're saying, the voice has the ability to evoke something, stir something, some level of kavana, at least inter- some internal movement. If not in your heart, at least in your mind at least in awareness, which leads you to resolution to act. Until it becomes second nature. You do it so often. You do it every day. You pray and you say it again and again and again. It becomes second nature. God is my father. I'm his child. As the Baal said, that every Jew is like an only child. Imagine parents who can't have children. In their older age, miraculously, they were blessed with a child. Could you imagine the love that those parents would have to that child? That's a small example, tiny example, of the love God has towards each and every Jew, like a child, only child. Tasha. If you're aware of this, how can you not love Hashem? Like a parent a father child relationship. We know we know our own personal experience, what a profound relationship that is. So if we have that personal relationship with Hashem, then it has to do something for you. If you say it and repeat it every day and you're aware of it, it has to evoke some feeling inside of you, some connection. Something has to come alive inside of you. Something has to awaken inside of you, something has to stir up inside of you. And that will lead you to action. To act, as, to act as a Jew. To give your father nachas. And so too when you pray and you realize that God is my life and God is our life and He's the life of our life and this is the source of life and, and this is what I want. There's nothing I want more than life itself and God is life. 
So anything that can plugs me in and connects me to life, then I feel alive. And if I don't, a day goes by and I don't study Torah and I don't do a mitzvah, is a day that I feel hollow, shallow and empty because I feel dead inside. I was occupied and engaged all day, but it was all external, superficial things, skin-deep things, money, power, fame. Nothing could satisfy. That's, just, that's a corpse. That's not life. I need life. I need energy. I want life. And what's the source of life, the ultimate life, the source, the life of life is Hashem. Godliness, the infinite, Torah, mitzvot. So therefore, every day I want to have a little Torah, I want to have a little mitzvah in my life. Otherwise, my dead is my, I feel dead inside. There's no life. So you hold, it's like holding on to dear life. I want life. I need life. I crave life. I yearn for life. So then you come alive as a Jew. When you do the Torah mitzvah based on these two loves, these natural loves we're all born with, but you evoke these loves through your awareness or through the aid of b'ficha, of saying it enough and repeating it and just verbalizing it and voicing it. By voicing it and verbalizing it in prayer. That's why in prayer you have to verbalize it. You can't just meditate and think. You don't fulfill the mitzvah of prayer with just meditate and think. You have to verbalize it. Because by verbalizing it and by voicing it, that alone stirs up some inner kavana, some inner focus, concentration, some inner intent, some inner stirring, which lead you to action. Okay, and now, we started last week, middle of page 657. Even if it appears to him at first sight that this is an illusion, and that in truth he does not possess this love for God, and thinking that he does is nothing less than deluding himself as to his true spiritual status, he need not be concerned because it is intrinsically the absolute truth even without his own spiritual service by virtue of hidden love which his soul possesses for God. But the benefit derived from the spiritual service through which he effects its emergence into the open is that he should translate it into action. And when his love is in a state of concealment, it cannot affect his actions. So even though you may think to yourself, I have to be a genuine person. Whom, whom am I kidding? I don't feel this love. I don't feel this intense, deep love to God. God is my Father. God is my life. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that sensitive. I'm not that deep. I'm not that soulful. I'm a very earthy person. I just can't relate to it in a genuine way. And even if I do, for the moment, perhaps in prayer, during prayer, on Shabbat, on a holiday, when I'm in a holy mood, in a holy setting, in an auspicious moment, I do, for a moment, do feel that love. And I do feel like a child talking to my father. And I do feel like a, I'm pouring my heart out to my father and I have this relationship, this beautiful, loving relationship, this infinite relationship. And let's say I do feel that God is my soul, but it doesn't last. The moment I close the prayer book, the moment I go back to Wall Street, it's as if it never happened. Suddenly I'm immersed in the world, in the material world, and I forget all about those, that wonderful experience that I experienced on Shabbat, or I experienced during the morning prayer. So in a sense, it's like what he calls an illusion, because it doesn't last. Yes, it's repeatable, 
like a scientific experiment. You can always repeat it every morning, every Shabbat. I can always re- repeat that experience. So in that sense, it's genuine. It's not false. It doesn't say false, God forbid. It's not false. But it's an illusion because it's not lasting. It doesn't last. It's not permanent. In other words, it hasn't really touched me or transformed me or changed me. If it's, a, if it's a love that could only be revealed in a certain setting, in a certain way, sense, that's very limiting. It means that it hasn't really affected me because if something really affects you very deeply, then it's 24-7. When we're in the shul, suddenly I'm inspired and the moment I leave the shul and I close the book and I'm back in business and I'm back in the office, suddenly it's like it's vanished and gone as if it never happened. That means that even when I experience it, it's limited because it hasn't really penetrated very deep. Because if it would penetrate very deep, it would stay with me for, for, for the rest of the day forever. Yes, I have a taste. I have a taste. Obviously, a day that you pray is not going to be the same as a day that you didn't pray. A day that you experience this, it'll, it'll lift up your entire day. But nevertheless, it's just a taste. But the love itself is what he calls here an illusion because it doesn't last. So he says, nevertheless, don't be discouraged. Why? Because it's not an illusion. Why not? Because deep down, you always have this love. Your soul has a life of its own. So your soul feels this love in depth, in its entirety. All the time, 24-7. You don't feel it. You don't have access to your soul. You don't have access to your subconscious. But it's there. There's a whole world within us that we're oblivious to, we're completely unaware of. Our whole conscious world is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just one tiny fraction of who we really are. There's so much hidden things inside of us. There's so much going on inside of us that we're totally clueless and oblivious. But it doesn't change the reality. The reality is we have a soul. And that deep down the soul feels this love and all its fiery truth and and feels it and loves Hashem with an intensity. But we don't sense it. It doesn't change the reality. Therefore... When you, do, when you have this experience that you call an illusion, you're actually being in touch with who you really are. At that moment, that's a moment of truth. It's everything. The rest of the day, that's an illusion. The rest of the day, when you don't feel it, that's the illusion. When you pray, that's the reality. On Shabbat, that's the reality. On Yom Kippur, that's the reality. That's a reflection of who you really are. The way we are on Yom Kippur, that's who we really are. It's the rest of the year, that's a... F- Farce. That's, that's when we fake it. That's when we're delusional. That's the illusion. But the reality is, deep down we all want to do the right thing, and deep down we all have a connection with Hashem, and deep down we all have this intimate love with Hashem, and we don't want to be separated from Hashem. Even for one moment, it's unbearable and intolerable for us to be separated from Hashem. Just like a person can't be separated from life. For one moment, can you take a recess from life? Just for one moment? No. So too, we can't bear to be separated from Hashem even for a moment. This is our truth. And when you feel it, even for a moment, even if you get a glimpse of it, you're getting a glimpse of your truth. It's your core truth. Whether you feel it or not, it's the reality. So when you do feel it, that moment is genuine. It's the rest of the time that's, that's an illusion. So therefore, don't worry. Don't get so excited. Don't, don't, don't doubt the genuineness of this feeling because, hey, I can't really feel it. Or I can't sustain it. It is as genuine as it gets. Because deep down, you're born with it. It's innate, it's inherent. But it's hidden. So if it's there anyway, so why do I have to struggle so much to bring it to the conscious level, to bring it to the surface? Because otherwise, it could remain hidden and it has no effect on you. You can be a billionaire. 
And yet you could be running around hungry, running in tatters, running around homeless, starving to death. Because it doesn't help you that you have a billion dollars in the bank unless you make a withdrawal. You have to withdraw that money and use it. So every Jew is a billionaire, a trillionaire. We inherited the greatest wealth, the greatest treasure. We're believers, the children of believers. We have this holy neshama, this holy divine connection with Hashem. We're trillionaires. Every Jew. The greatest to the smallest. Observant, not yet observant. Every single one, without fail. Anyone who's born to a Jewish mother or converts halachically has this soul. But if you don't access it, and you don't make a withdrawal, and you don't use your wealth, then it doesn't help you. It's sitting there, it's buried, it's a treasure, but you're not tapping into that treasure. It doesn't do anything for you. It's not affecting your life, your daily life. So therefore, we need your conscious participation, you need your effort to bring it to the surface, to tap into this treasure. So when you think about it, and you meditate, and still you become aware of the reality that God is my soul, and as if my life depends on, on godliness, and I can't li- bear a moment being disconnected from godliness, and I can't get enough of Torah and mitzvot, or if you're th- aware of your relationship to God, like a parent-child, like a son-father relationship, or daughter-father relationship, and, you can't, you, and you, you're totally dedicated to your parent, and there's nothing you won't do for your parent. It's only when you become aware of this on a conscious level that you tap into this energy, you tap into this wealth, you tap into this treasure. And then it becomes a force in your life. Then it changes your behavior, it changes your action. It enriches your life. What does it help you if you're rich, but you're walking around in poverty? But here, suddenly you start enriching your life. You start living your life as a Jew. You start living a godly life, a wealthy life, a rich life. So that's the effect of this, what you call an illusion. Yes, maybe on a conscious level, you can't sustain this love, the intensity of this love. It's not as palpable. It's only in your thought. But nevertheless, if it leads you to action, if it leads you to enrich your life, then, then it's genuine because you have this treasure and you've brought it to the surface and it enriched your life. It changed your behavior. So you've, you've introduced it into your, into your daily life. So then you're okay. You have nothing to worry about. You're fine. You're doing fine. So don't feel sad or don't feel discouraged thinking that, well, it's not. Okay. No, it's okay. You're doing fine. That's all God asks of us. On top of it, 658. This means being occupied with the Torah and the mitzvah, which he studies and performs as a result of it, i.e. as a result of revealing this love, with the intention of causing gratification to God, like a son serving his father who does so in order to cause him gratification. Since the revelation of this love leads, in fact, to increased performance, he should not be troubled by the fact that he may be deluding himself in thinking that he possesses this love. In actuality, he does not, particularly since his soul does truly love God. Concerning this, it was said that a good thought is joined by the Holy One, blessed be he, to a deed, providing it with a wings to soar upwards, as explained earlier. We learned earlier in chapter 16, 16, the literal meaning of what the rabbis say is that a good thought, a good intention, God considers as if you have done it. You try to do a good deed, but then due to no fault of, of your own, you couldn't actually do the good deed. But since you sincerely intended to do the good deed, Hashem will count it as if you've done it. But then the question is, it doesn't make sense. The rabbi should have said that a good thought, Hashem, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu Maila Ki'ilu Asa Hashem will consider as if you've done it. That's not what the rabbis say. The literal translation of this expression is HaKadosh Baruch Hu Mitzarifa connects it to action. Meaning that there is an action and there is a thought. They're disconnected and you need Hashem to connect the two. So if you say it's as if you've done it then there is no action. You, the simple literal meaning is you intended to do a good deed but you never materialized. You never actually got to do the good deed. Nevertheless, Hashem considers and gives you the reward as if you've done it. But here, we're saying that there is already a good deed. Mitzarfa means connection, to connect the thought to the good deed. So the Alter Rebbe says the rabbis are hinting here at another concept. In addition to the literal meaning of this uh, saying of the rabbis, they also are hinting to something deeper. That in the case where a Jew does a mitzvah, there is action. But the action is lifeless and soulless. There's no energy. It's flat. The Jew is going through the motion of doing it by rote, out of habit. There's no love. There's no soul. There's no energy. There's no energy. There's no movement. There's no spirit. There's no energy. There's nothing spiritual. Action is material, it's physical. Physical, there's no life. It just sits there like a stone. So you do action, you did the action, but it's like a stone, there's no life. It's lifeless, it's soulless. There's no energy to lift up this action. But what is there? Thought. Where does energy come from? Energy comes from the heart. When you love something, when you're passionate about something, when you do something with passion, or you speak with passion, the words are alive. The words are on fire. You ever hear a fiery speaker? The words are alive. You'll never forget that speech versus someone who's reading from a teleprompter. You know, you're falling asleep. It's, true. it's the same words, but here it's alive. There's emotion, there's feeling. He loves what he's saying, he feels what he's saying versus someone who's just sitting there and reading it. And he's, he's asleep and he puts everyone else asleep. It's the same words. This word, these words have energy. These words don't have energy. Anyone can give an eloquent speech, like as, as eloquent as Churchill, if they talk about something that they care about. Rent control or other things. <laughs> they, they talk about something that matters to you, and suddenly there's passion and there's excitement. and there's, Talk about something you don't care about, and everyone is asleep. It's the same words. But here there's feeling, there's emotion, there's energy, there's passion. It's alive. Same thing as with action. You take an action and you're just going through the motion and you just, you're asleep. You're a stone. Sitting in shul there, you might as well have stone sitting in shul. There's no movement, there's no, it's like this lifeless, soulless, lifeless, going through the motions, saying the words. It's, of course, such a synagogue doesn't exist anywhere, but, <laughs> but, but theoretically, maybe in Alaska, <laughs> um, versus. A person who loves what he's doing, the action is alive. There's passion, there's soul, there's fire. There's, it's a different action. So here there's action, but the problem is there's no heart. There's no, there's no love. There's no emotion. There's no pull. There's no attraction. All there is, there's no excitement. There's no thrill. But there's thought. Thought is abstract. Your mind is telling you, get excited. But it doesn't, hasn't reached your heart. You know, between the mind and the heart, 
That's why it's, it, there's, all, there's a one-way, a one one-lane highway. It's called the neck. That's why it's called bottleneck. Because all the thoughts from the mind to the heart has to go through a very narrow highway. It's not a California highway of five, six lanes. This is a narrow road. And it's, it's, there's a lot of traffic. <laughs> Things just, there's no movement, you know, there's no movement. Things just don't get from the mind to the heart. You know, we're aware, we know a lot. We know the way we ought to be, we know the way we should be, we would like to be. But it doesn't reach our heart. We don't feel the excitement, we can't motivate ourselves. We don't have that love, we don't have that energy. So it remains up here. So that's what the rabbis are hinting at. You have a Jew who has thought, he has the awareness, he knows what he wants to do, he knows what he would like to do, he would like to get excited, but he can't, he can't bring himself to get excitement. It doesn't affect his heart, his heart remains indifferent. But he skips his heart and goes right to his action. Based on his thought, he makes he resolves, he makes a, a strong, firm resolution, I am going to live a Jewish life because it's the right thing to do, because I ought to be excited about it. I should be excited about it. It bothers me that I'm not excited about it, but I should, because it's the right thing to do. And I would like to get excited about it. I can. But nevertheless, based on my thought, I will live accordingly. And based on that thought, you change your behavior. You live a Jewish life. You do the right thing. So you have action, and you have thought. But there's no connection between the action and the thought. The action is lifeless dead. It's a corpse. It's a stone. No energy, no soul, nothing spiritual, no life. It's flat. You did your obligation, you did the right thing, but that's about it. But you have the thought. So, when Hashem, when Hashem sees that a Jew has the positive thought, and he has the positive intention, and he wants to get excited, and he knows that he ought to get excited. But he can't bring himself to get excited. The heart is missing. The soul is missing. Nevertheless, Hashem connects the two. Hashem will consider it as if you've done the mitzvah passionately, as if that energy is there. And therefore, it will lift off. In order to lift off, you need energy. Without energy, there's no lift off. Without energy, everything remains flat in this world. To lift off the rocket ship, it should soar to outer space, to soar to heaven. You need powerful energy. So when the mitzvah is done with energy, the mitzvah soars. The mitzvah soars to heaven. Because when the mitzvah is done with spiritual, with love, spiritual energy, then it soars to heaven, to the spiritual realm. But when the mitzvah is done without spirit, without love, there's no energy, then the mitzvah is physical. The mitzvah is a physical act that remains flat in this world. But when Hashem sees that a Jew has the proper intention, a Jew wants to do the right thing, and he's aware of the right thing, and it bothers him that he can't, he can't get excited about it, but he knows that he ought to get excited about it. And based on that awareness, he lives his life as if he were excited. Could you imagine? What discipline? How genuine that is? That I'm going to live a Jewish life even if I don't feel it? I'm not going to make that a precondition if I don't feel it, I'm out of here. I'm only going to do something if I feel it, if I'm swept, uh, swept off my feet, if I'm passionate, but if I don't feel a passion, I'm out of here. No. You make a resolution that this is the right thing to do. I ought to get excited, I ought to feel it, but even if I don't and I can't, 
I'm still going to do the right thing. How sincere is that? That's so sincere. Hashem sees the sincerity. Hashem sees. So even though there's no energy, there's no strength, there's no force, how can you lift up this mitzvah? There's no, there's no lift off. There's, there's no energy. There's no fuel. Hashem comes and provides the energy. Hashem makes the connection. Hashem takes the thought of the Jew. And He takes the action. He connects the two. And therefore, the mitzvah soars. That provides the fuel. That provides the energy for liftoff. It's as if you've done the mitzvah with heart and soul. Why? Because Hashem sees the inside of a Jew. Hashem sees that deep down the Jew is on fire. You don't feel that fire. But that fire is there. Only Hashem can know that truth. We... On a human level, on a conscious level, we don't feel that fire. Our hearts are cold. We don't feel anything. We don't get excited. But Hashem sees that deep down we are on fire. And Hashem sees our sincerity. That we made that commitment and we changed our behavior. So Hashem connects the two. And therefore the mitzvah to soar as a result. So that's what he's saying. So although you're not missing anything. Because even though you don't feel it's an illusion, you don't feel that fire in the heart, all you have is an awareness and a resolution based on that awareness. And Hashem will take that thought and take the action based on that awareness and connect the two and consider it as if you've done it with passion, with joy, and with energy. I could probably join to a deed. Not simply mean that when one thinks about doing a deed and then... Now he's going to say, what is the, when you have this awareness, or at least with your voice, you arouse this, something stirs in your heart and you feel this love for God, God is my Father, and therefore you have this unconditional love and connection to Hashem, that will lead you to do Torah mitzvahs because just like a son or a daughter will do anything to please your father, you want to give nachas to your father, so therefore, knowing that what will give Hashem nachas, knowing that by doing Torah mitzvahs, you will give Hashem tremendous nachas. Why? The gratification he provides God is akin, by way of the illustration used earlier, to the joy of a king whose son returns to him after liberation from captivity. Like we learned earlier, when a Jew is in this world, for the soul, it's like being in a concentration camp. For the soul, leaving the heavenly perch and coming to the abyss, this material, coarse world, for the soul, it's it's a very painful journey. And to add insult to injury, on top of everything else, then we go ahead and sin. For the soul, every time you tell a lie, every time you sin, the soul never gets used to it. It's like taking the child 
of an innocent child, the hand of an innocent child, and putting it into the fire. Torturing it. Every time we tell a lie, every time we do a sin, we're torturing our soul. The soul never gets used to it. We become jaded. We become cynical. Uh, we lose our conscience. We, we, we don't feel anymore. We stop feeling. We become numb. We just numb, numb out. But the soul is alive. The soul is that pure, innocent trial. And the soul never loses that purity and innocence. And the soul can never get used to it. The soul can never make peace with it. A person can sin and sin, even make it a celebrated way of life. The soul can never get used to it. To the soul, every time you sin, it's literally the cruelty. You're like a Nazi to your soul. You're taking the innocent child and putting him into the fire, alive, burning him alive. Every time you tell a lie, every time you slander, every time you do something wrong, it doesn't, the soul never gets used to it. You can be doing it for 50 years. The soul is, is alive. So for the soul and coming, coming into this world, it's like literally, you're sending him into a concentration camp. Because the soul is genuine, the soul is divine, the soul is godly. What's the only reprieve the soul gets? Imagine. Imagine if you were able to convince Hitler to give the inmates in the concentration camp an hour a day off. Let them come, let them come an hour a day off. Do you imagine the joy that you would give to the parents? You got my son a reprieve from a concentration camp. He got an hour a day off. He can walk out of the camp and, and just, just relax and, and, and breathe in fresh air. Imagine. That's the joy that God has for the soul. That the soul got a reprieve. You brought the soul into synagogue. The soul is praying for a half hour, an hour. The soul is studying a little Tanya, studying a little Torah, a little Talmud, a little Chumash. You're doing a mitzvah, you're giving tzedakah. Thank you. You know what you've done? You've given the soul a reprieve from its torture, from its pain. It's unbearable torture, unbearable pain. From, from its, its uh, existential angst that the soul is in this world. Every moment that the soul in this world, for the soul, is unbearably painful. And you've given the soul a reprieve. You've returned the soul back to the palace. You've returned the soul back to heaven, back to home, back to his father. The prince has been released from, the, from prison, from the concentration camp. And the prince was allowed a reprieve just an hour a day to go back to the palace. Could you imagine the joy that the father will have? So if you can do something divine for the soul every time you do a mitzvah, any mitzvah, any of the 613 mitzvahs, any time you give a penny to tzedakah, any time you study Torah, any time you pray, imagine the joy and the nachas that the Father has. Thank you. You've rescued my prince, my only child, from the abyss, from the concentration camp, from the prison, and you've brought him home, even for a moment. So if you love your father, you would do anything to give him nachas. What gives him is anything that gives him more nachas than the fact that you've redeemed his child from prison and brought him back home. Through Torah and mitzvah. Imagine the joy and the love with which you would pray. How much feeling, how much fervor you would put into that prayer. You know what you're doing with this prayer? You're saving the soul. You know, you know what you're doing with this mitzvah? You know what you're accomplishing with this Torah study? You know how much nachas you're giving, you're giving your father in heaven? Then it's a different, a different Torah, a different mitzvah. It's alive. It's done with feeling, with intent, with awareness. You're not sleeping. When the soul, God's child, is closed in the body, an animal soul, it is in a state of captivity. Through Torah and mitzvot, it is liberated from this cap- captivity and is joined with God. 
This causes him a joy similar to that experienced by the mortal king in the, in the analogy. Or God's gratification may be from the fact that it, it has been made possible for him to have a habitation among mortals, as already mentioned. Or, as he mentioned earlier, that the whole purpose of creation, why did God create the entire universe, including the heavens and the heaven of heavens and the higher realms of consciousness and the angels and all the spiritual world, the infinite spiritual world, have all been created for one purpose. The ultimate purpose is because God desired to have a dwelling place, to feel at home in this world. Where does God desire? Where does God feel at home? Ironically and paradoxically, it's in this material world, in the physical world, in this coarse world, in this false world, in this illusory world, in this world which is the antithesis of godliness, the antithesis of truth. There isn't a point in this world that's now riddled with lies and hypocrisy and superficiality and mediocrity and and there's so much evil and there's so much in this world coarse world dark world which is so sometimes so pitch black in this world God wanted us to illuminate this world illuminate this darkness transform this darkness with the ultimate light His presence Hashem's presence when we do Torah, we do mitzvot, we're bringing Hashem's presence into this world. When you do a divine mitzvah, you're bringing Hashem into this world. You're taking a physical object and bringing Hashem into this world by making that mitzvah, that physical object, into a holy object. You're permanently, when you put on tefillin once in your life, you permanently transform that piece of leather, it becomes a holy object. You've permanently drawn down Hashem's presence into that physical object. That's what Hashem wants through all the 613 mitzvot. Taking a Torah scroll and bringing Hashem's holiness into the physical world by taking your home and putting a mezuzah in your home and having holy books in your home and having a kosher kitchen in your home. You have transformed your home, your portion of this world, and you have transformed it into a home for Hashem by taking money, the ultimate ego symbol, and giving it to tzedakah. You've taken your office and your career and all your interactions and all your... Your, your committee meetings and everything you've ever done to earn that dollar and you've transformed that into something holy and godly. This is our mission as Jews, to fulfill God's purpose, the ultimate purpose that, for which God created the whole universe. He had one reason and one reason only. He desired, for whatever reason, He desired to take this world, which is the lowest of all the worlds, spiritually speaking, the antithesis of anything that's holy and godly and genuine and good, a world which is so immoral and unethical and unspiritual, a world riddled with lies. And to take this world, this pitch blackness, pitch darkness, and to transform it through Torah, through mitzvah, through our effort. We are partners with Hashem in creation. Through our effort, we bring Hashem into this world and transform this world from a dark place into a place that's illuminated with the brilliance of Hashem's presence, the essence of Hashem, the essence of God bringing holiness into this world, transforming the world step by step, one Jew at a time, one mitzvah at a time, and transforming the whole entire world. So when you realize that this is what Hashem wants, this is what gives Hashem nachas, and I can give Hashem nachas, I can put a smile on His face by doing the mitzvah, physically and literally doing the mitzvah, any of the 613 mitzvahs, 
in studying the Torah, using my mind, my human mind to understand the Torah and to delve into the Torah in depth and to appreciate and learn it and study it and understand it. And by doing a mitzvah and doing an act of goodness and kindness, giving tzedakah, this is what motivates me. Since God is my father, I know that this is what God wants, this is what gives him nachas, I'll do anything to give Hashem nachas. So, so if a person voices and mouths the words every day in prayer, God is my father, avinu, avinu malkeinu, and you say it, and you mean it, and you're aware of it, inevitably the voice will arouse some feeling inside of you, some kavana, some inner intent, which will lead you to want to, do, to, want to jump into studying of Torah and jump in and do the mitzvah. Because you have this awareness, you have this, this connection, very focused connection. God is my Father, and I love my Father, and I'll do anything for my Father. It's an unconditional, infinite connection. And therefore I wanted to give him nachas. What gives him nachas? If I study Torah, do mitzvot. A, because I redeem my soul, and I've, I've rescued my soul, and brought the soul back from prison, from the concentration camp to the palace. How much nachas that, gives, that will give my, my Hashem. And because I will fulfill the ultimate desire, the ultimate uh, desire that Hashem had to bring holiness and godliness into this world and to transform the physical, material world from within, from the bottom up, through our efforts, through Torah and mitzvot, to transform this coarse world into a godly place, into a dwelling place where Hashem feels at home. The love which is like a son who strives for the sake of his father can be revealed by completing oneself with his tongue and voice to arouse the intention of heart and mind. That the Rebbe soon goes on to explain that the love of my soul I desire may also be revealed and awakened through habitually speaking about it when one does so in a manner where the heart will feel that God is his true life, a life of life. Even in regard to the above-mentioned love of the category of my soul like desire you, it is readily possible to bring it out of its concealment into the open through constant practice. His mouth and heart is full accord so that one's heart should feel as his mouth uttered about God being his true life. So if you know if you are aware, if you notice it it's a little strange because we learned the other week which love is a greater love? The love that God is my soul? Or the love that God is my father. Which is a greater love? L- right, the God is my father. My father yes. Because the God is my soul, I love my soul. Not more than my soul. I won't go beyond my soul. I'm not going to exceed myself. I'm not going to sacrifice myself. But when you have the love of God is my father, you're ready to sacrifice yourself for your father. You're ready to discomfort yourself. You're ready to go beyond yourself. It's not about me. It's about my father. It's, a, it's a real love. I love myself. I love my life. But ultimately itself, versus if I love God, God is my Father, I'm ready to go beyond myself. Okay, now we just, you just finished reading that he says if a person cannot truly evoke this, feel, this love in his heart, 
It's enough if you're aware of it. And he gives the advice that by, by mouthing it and by voicing it, the power, the nature of voices, if you put it into words and you voice it, it has the ability to stir some, something internal, some kavana, some inner intent, some focus. So he says, this is very effective when it comes to the love that God is my father. And then he says, it's even effective even for the love that God is my soul. That's what he just read. Even, even in regards to the love that God is my soul, saying it and voicing it and mouthing it, putting it into words is also helpful. Why the even? It should be just the opposite. The love of God is my father is much more difficult. It's a much greater love. So it's, it should be more difficult to be able to evoke. Versus the love that God is my soul is on a lower level. That, that should be easier to evoke. Why does he say the, the opposite, the contrary? That the voice evokes kavana, feeling, and that's true not only with the love that God is my father, but even with the love that God is my soul. And the Rebbe explains, because there's, there's a difference between these two loves. The love that God is my Father is a much more spiritual love. It's not in the biological sense, God is my Father. It's a spiritual love. That God is my Father and God is my source. And, and I'm like a child and like a parent-child relationship. And it's not anything physical. It's more of a spiritual concept that we are the children of God and God is my Father and He loves every one of us as if we were the only child. And so it's, it's something that it's only in your mind. It's not something you can relate to in a physical sense. Versus the love that God is my soul, that's a lot more concrete because you can, exper- you can relate to it from your own personal experience. Just like in life. What does a person want in life? It's not your body. It's not your physical. It's not your, the body is a corpse. It's your energy. You want energy in life. If you had all the wealth in the world, but there was no energy, there was no excitement, there was no thrill, you would be bored to death. That's not what you want. You want energy, excitement, thrill. You're looking for the soul, the intangible, the energy. So you can relate to the idea that just like your body has a soul, and you want soul and energy more than anything else in your life, so too your soul also has a soul. What's the soul of your soul? The soul is like a body to Hashem, the infinite light that energizes your soul. The source of life, the source of your soul. Your soul also has a source. So this is the life of God, is the life of your soul. And therefore, I want life. If I want life, I want the ultimate source of life. The ultimate pleasure, which is Hashem, divine. So that's something you can relate to more from a personal human experience. Versus the concept of God is my father, it's something that's way out there. It's not, you have no frame of reference. You can't really relate to it. Because it's not in any biological sense. It's a purely divine concept. It's a purely spiritual concept. So it's hard to wrap your mind around it. So when, when we say here that the voice arouses intent, that's also a spiritual thing. The voice arouses intent. When you say something and you mouth something, it evokes something inside of you. That's the power of speech. When you say something, it evokes something inside it. You can't remain totally indifferent to it. That's how, how, why the Rambam, the Manari says, he quotes, 
that when a person does the shuva, when you, you, when you repent, you regret your bad behavior, so the mitzvah is that you should confess. You should spell out your sin. It's not enough just to think, I regret, but you have to verbalize it. You have to verbalize and you have to confess. Say, God, I sinned and spell it out. This is what I did. And I'm, I regret it and I'm sorry and it'll never happen again. That's the mitzvah of teshuvah. It's not enough to think it. You have to verbalize it. You have to say it. Now, then the Rambam continues. Obviously, if you just verbalize it <laughs> and you don't regret that you don't mean it, then it's worthless. And what's his analogy? His analogy is it's like going to the mikvah because you're impure, because you touched a dead mouse. So you're going to the mikvah. But while you're immersing yourself in the mikvah, you're still holding on to the dead mouse while you're in the mikvah. <laughs> the mikvah can't purify you. You're still holding on to the source of impurity, a dead corpse. You're still holding on to the source of impurity. The mikvah can't help you. You have to let go of the dead mouse and then go into the mikvah. So when you regret, and you sincerely regret, you're letting go of the dead mouse, the source of impurity, and you're dipping yourself into the mikvah, so then, then you're purified. Then if you confess, then it's like going into the mikvah. But here, you're going into the mikvah, but you're still holding on to the source of impurity because there's no inner regret. There's no inner... You're not saying, I'm sorry, you don't regret it. I'm going to do this tomorrow. So then... It doesn't mean anything. Now, the Rebbe asks, it makes no sense. The analogy it makes no sense. Because if you confess, but you don't regret, it's not like you're going into the mikveh. You're not even in the mikveh. You're standing outside the mikveh and you're holding on to the dead mouths. It's nothing. What do you mean? I'm confessing, but I don't mean it. I'm not sincere. I don't regret it. And I'm not sorry. And I'm going to do it again. As soon as I leave shul, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it again. So why the analogy here, at least you're in the mikveh, but you're still holding on to the source. Here you're not even in the mikveh, you're nothing. Just verbalizing it, just saying it. If it's insincere. The Rebbe says, here you see the power of words. That's what he says, the voice stirs something within you. When you say it, just by saying it, even if you're a politician, even if you're a liar, you don't mean what you say. When you speak, it has to have some effect in you. Somewhere inside of you makes you feel a little guilty. It's, it's hard for a person. That's why unless a person is a, is a real pathological liar, the lie detector test will pick up something. Because when you lie, something inside of you bothers you. It, it will detect it. Even if even it's very subtle. It could be very subtle. And you need a lie detector machine to, to, to detect it. Unless a person is literally a pathological, has no conscience, and a person has trained himself or whatever. But a normal person, if the moment you say something, if you're lying, it will bother you in some place. Maybe only, only a lie detector will pick it up because it's very subtle. But something inside of you will, 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 will react. You can't speak and not mean a word you say to be 100% lie. It's very difficult. So when you speak, you have to mean something. Something has to... That's the power of speech. The voice, the words, does evoke something inside of you. And that's, the, that's why the analogy is correct. When you regret, when you confess, even if you're insincere, the act of saying it and verbalizing it does have some effect on you. So you're in the mikvah. But of course it's worthless because you're still holding on to that mouse. It's not as sincere. So to hear. But just by saying it, by repeating it and saying it, God is my Father. 
and repeating it once and twice and every day in our prayers, it's going to have an effect on you. It's, it has some, some spiritual effect on you. It evokes the kavana. Something stirs inside of you. Internally it has an effect on you. But the love of God is my soul is a much more physical type of love. I love life. Life is more dear to me than anything in the world. And when I realize that God is my life, I love life. It's almost like a physical craving. Just like you physically crave life, you physically crave energy, pleasure, thrill. You want to live, you want to be alive, you want to be energetic, you want to be vibrant. And when you realize that God is the source of all vibrancy and God is the source of all life, so you physically crave Hashem, the divine, Torah, mitzvah. But if you can't feel it, if you can't feel that craving and you can't feel any physical craving to the divine, you don't sense that God is my life, then just saying it will hardly help you. Because that's something spiritual. Saying and voicing could only affect you internally, can affect you spiritually, can affect your intent. But it doesn't have a physical impact. It's a voice. It's saying it. It's speaking it. It's, it's mouthing the words. So it can stir up something spiritual. But the love of God is my life isn't just spiritual. It's almost like a physical craving. So if you can't feel that physical craving towards the divine, towards godliness, then mouthing it will hardly help you. Versus the love that God is my father, which the whole love is spiritual. So in this case, if you can't feel it, palpably voicing it and mouthing it and putting it into words and saying it and repeating it every day will evoke a kavana, will evoke something inside of you. So you're more likely, it's more likely to be effective, it's more likely to be an aid for the more difficult love, the love of God is my father, than it is for the love that God is my life and God is my soul. That's what he says. But nevertheless, even in regards to the above-mentioned love, even in regards to the love of God is my, God is my life, even that, voicing it and mouthing it and repeating it, does have some impact. Slight impact, but some impact. It will stir something inside of it. And then he continues, and he says a third thing. However, even if he cannot bring it, the Lord, into a revealed state of his heart, nevertheless, he can occupy himself because of his love in the Torah and Mitzvot for their own sake, through portraying the idea of his love in his mind, and the good thought is united by God. Now he's giving a third aid, a third advice. Even if you can't evoke this feeling in your heart, and even if you can't saying it and putting it into words doesn't stir any kavana, doesn't stir anything inside, nevertheless, you can use your imagination. We all have healthy imaginations. And just picturing it. When you picture something, and you use your power of imagination. Some people have more developed power of imagination than others. But putting it into pictures, if you can't put it into words, or words don't help you, picture it. Picture this love. Picture the love of a parent and a child. Picture the unconditional love, the dedication, the devotion, the infinite dedication and devotion of a, of a father-son relationship, of a king-prince, king-princess. Just imagine that love. Just imagining it. And then saying, you know, I have this relationship with God, whether I feel it or not, that's the reality. Just putting yourself, you know, when you read a book, 
sometimes it just takes you into a different world. Sometimes you start picturing it and you start imagining. And, you know, it, even if it just captures your imagination, even though it's not in your heart, you don't personally feel that love. And you can't personally relate to it. You don't internalize it. But let your imagination free. Let it loose. Just imagine. Just, just imagine this type of love. Just imagining it takes you to a different world, takes you to a different place, elevates you. And, and you re- knowing that the truth is you have this love, then that can also help you. At least if, to experience it somewhat. So if you can't experience it emotionally, you can't even experience it so much intellectually, but experience it via imagination. Imagine. Uh, it's regarding the souls. Is this, it's not a contradiction. The souls, I heard from a rabbi, that the souls are lined up in heaven wanting to come down here so they can come down here and, and be in a vessel or body to be able to do mitzvah. That's still correct. Is, is it just that when they come down here and they're in a body that's not doing mitzvot, it's, it's like being in a concentration camp? Is that what you're saying? They, they want to come down here so they can do mitzvahs, correct? Well, uh, actually, the Mishnah says, the Mishnah says, by force you live. The soul has to be forced down into this world. But the, then the Mishnah continues. But by force you die. <laughs> Once you're in this world already, you don't want to leave. You want to continue to live. Um, you know, this, is, this world is very risky. You know, God is the ultimate gambler because he gambles everything. He puts, he puts the soul into this world and you can lose everything. You can lose your life. You can lose your share of the world to come. You can lose your life. You can act silly. You can act foolish. You can do things that you will regret for the rest of your life that will leave a mark and a stain for the rest of your life. You can do things that, you know, it's, all the roads are dangerous. It's a very risky proposition. God is not playing it safe. He's not a nine-to-five person. God is a gambler. He throws everything on the line. Not only he's affected, he's affected. We can affect him. We can affect all the worlds. When the Jews sin, the whole universe collapses. We, we bring tragedy and disaster to the whole universe. When a, when a Jew is on the highest level, you, you, you redeem the whole world. You bring Mashiach. So everything is on the line. God put himself on the line. He is, his, he is in exile. He is suffering. When we sin, he suffers. So he, and he, it's up to us. He throws his lot in our hands. How much confidence does God have in us? Unbelievable. And yet he's, he's risking everything. He's putting everything on the wall. So on one hand, it's exciting because, like in business, if you play 9 to 5, you'll always make a very solid salary, but you'll never make anything more. You're playing it safe. A business person throws everything on the line. The returns could be, the returns could be astronomical when you risk everything, or you can, you can lose everything. You can lose everything or you can win everything. So on one hand, it's exciting because, you know, what we can accomplish in this world, we can't accomplish. In heaven, everything is stayed. Everything is limited. There's no growth in heaven. There are no surprises in heaven. Everything is already, is already all set. It's only in this world, the world of change, is so dynamic. This world is so dynamic. It's so vibrant. You, you can accomplish so much. This is the world of business. This is the world where you can do business. This is the world where you can, you can gain so much profit. Or you can lose everything. You can, you can go bankrupt. We can become a billionaire. It's up to us. Maybe I misunderstood something you said, which is uh, always possible. But I, uh, I have no problem and with the relationship between a father 
the father and daughter, father and son. But I think for me, and I've studied a little bit of Kabbalah, the Nashama relationship is unbelievably challenging. Like that is the most difficult relationship of all because it's complicated, it's not unconditional, you have to work at it, it's an interactive relationship. So while the first relationship I fully understand, not fully understand, but I understand, the other one is really difficult. Now, specifically, you mean the Neshama relationship? Yeah, oh, that, that, the God is my soul. Because well, I don't think it's a one-way street at all. It can't be a one-way street, but that is the challenge in life. I mean, accepting that someone's your father, okay, I understand that. Right, right. But the other relationship's a different story. Well, you know, there's a beautiful story. The, uh, one of the Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, um, the Alter Rebbe once gave him a blessing that he should live a long life. And he said to Rebbe, thank you, but on one condition. That my life should not be, I shouldn't be like a, it shouldn't be puyr shayyadan, it shouldn't be like a hick, a hick life. In other words, we have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. If I live a life and I don't see godliness and I don't sense godliness, then no thank you. I don't need that blessing. Just to live to 100 years old and I should live and just eat and sleep and drink and do business and golf, and that's what my life is all about, that's not life to me. If you give me a blessing for life, on one condition, it should be a meaningful life, a godly life. Now, question is, someone gives you a gift, you don't look a, a gift horse in the mouth. The Rebbe is giving you a blessing, he's giving you a gift. What, what are, you, are you making conditions? He's giving you a gift, a long life. Pay, run and take it to the bank. But for a Jew, it's not a life. Just to live without any divine content, without any divine purpose, without any, nothing meaningful, just to live with no sense of mission, no sense of purpose, no sense of destiny, no sense of history, no sense of connection, for a Jew, I might as well be dead. It's like a corpse. Just going through the motion, you have your barbecue, you have your vacations, everything is good, but there's no inner content. For a Jew, it's death. It's not, in other words, for a Jew, that's the whole point. Judaism is not like religion, it's not even like mysticism. That's compartmentalized. That's like, it's a nice addition to my life. It's icing on the cake. I have a life, but to add a little color, a little depth to my life, I also have a little religion sprinkled in, I have a little mysticism sprinkled in. Once in a while I go off and meditate. I go become quiet and I meditate. One day a week on Shabbat or one day a week, a special moment in my life. That's not Judaism. For a Jew, Judaism is life itself. Just like life is 24-7. Life permeates every cell of your body. Life is a constant, because it, it, this is what it's all about. So for a Jew, Judaism is not religion. Judaism is, not, Judaism is my life. Yeah, but is life neshama? Yeah, neshama. Oh. Life is neshama. Neshama is life. Without the neshama, the body is a corpse. What he's saying here is just like the body has a neshama, the neshama also has a neshama. What's the source of life? What's the source of the energy of the soul? Hashem. So Hashem is the soul of the soul. Hashem is the ultimate source of life. So if you crave life, what are you really craving for? A Jew is craving for the soul of the soul. You know, we, 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 we get straight to the... We like to get straight to the source. A Jew likes to get straight to the point. We get to the point of life, the source of life, the ultimate source of life. The ultimate source of life is Hashem. So therefore, if you crave life, what are you craving? What is life? 
the source of life. Nothing less than the source of life. The infinite, Hashem. So therefore, a Jew learns Torah, it's not a religious obligation. This is life, and I can't get enough of it. It's not a question of obligation. I'll go beyond my obligation. I need to recharge, I need to feel alive. When I study Torah, when I do a mitzvah, I'm alive. I've plugged into the divine. I've connected to the divine. I'm alive. A day goes by and I don't study Torah and I don't do a mitzvah, I feel dead inside. Externally, superficially, I look alive, but there's no, there's no life. I have energy, I have body, but there's no, what's the energy of the energy? What's the ultimate source of life? That's Hashem. So for a Jew, God becomes life. Like life itself, Torah becomes life. It's a Jew, that's why Judaism is a way of life. It's not religion. It's a total, all-encompassing way of life that affects every area of my life. Torah tells me how to do business, how to tie my shoes. Tells me, there isn't a single area in my life, how to have relationships. There isn't a single area in life, there isn't a single aspect of human existence or existence period that's not covered by the Torah. It's not religion. Torah encompasses everything. What? Well, well, that's where the love of, of, of the Father comes in. Because that's an infinite love. You're right. Love of my life is limited. Because it's my life. N- nothing more than my life. Love of... Here you're talking about something unconditional, infinite, undefined. This is already something that's way beyond. And you're right. That's a deeper love. And then there are even deeper loves, loves than that that we learned in the beginning of the chapter. Avarabha, the great love. A love of ecstasy. You're right. It's never enough because we do have this infinite connection, this undefined connection. But it's a start. Love of my life is a start. It's a good start. If you love life, if you love God, like life itself, if you crave godliness, like you crave life, it's a good start. (laughs) We'll take it, which can lead you to the next level. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.